please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is What Do We Want From Education? with Rhiannon Hall, Benjamin Law, Curly Saunders, Gabby Stroud and Jane Caro. Thank you everyone for being here. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting here today on the land of the Wadi Wadi people who were part of the Darawal Nation. This land was never ceded and remains Aboriginal land. I would like to acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging and extend that acknowledgement to any First Nations people here today. It is a privilege to be contributing to a very long history of storytelling and education that has been happening on this land since time immemorial. I'd like to also thank everyone on the Wollongong Writers' Festival's team uh, who's made this panel and indeed this whole weekend possible, especially the festival director, Chloe Higgins. I'm feeling very starstruck sitting on this panel with these amazing writers. Um, And I'm not going to read their bios because we have a lot we want to talk about today, but they are in the program. So I'll just begin by welcoming Jane Caro. <laughs> Curly Saunders, Benjamin Law, and Gabby Stroud. And I am Rhiannon Hall. So the theme for this year's festival is All Lit Up, which Chloe explained to be about bringing light to and speaking about the topics that aren't always given voice. Perhaps it is because I am an educator, but I feel that we talk about education a lot. There's so much conversation about education and what isn't being achieved and how our system is failing our children. Parents and politicians have ideas about what education is, which are often considered unfair expectations by people in the profession. So that's why I want our panel today to bring light to the question, what do we actually want from education? But before we get to that question, I'd like to start by asking you all to give a definition of what education is to each of you, as your relationships with schools and this idea of education are varied. So uh, who would like to start? Oh, you're all looking at me, aren't you? <laughs> I feel like I should know the answer to that because it's, it's like, uh, what is the answer? Um, I don't know. I'm not going to try and reach for it because it's not there in my brain. But to me, education is very much like the idea of reading and reading is about making meaning. And if we're educating well, we're helping um, someone else make meaning of their world and their life and their experience and the experience of those around them. That's my answer and I'm sticking to that. (laughs) Uh, uh, My instinct 
is to do the def- dictionary definition of education is as follows, but then I realise I sound like Kerry Ann Kennelly talking about racism, and I don't want to <laughs> don't want to do that. Um, so rather than talking about what education means, I think uh, I'll talk about. Um, I'll give an illustration in terms of how education has been important in my family story. So my maternal grandmother, my mum's mum, an extraordinary woman who had seven children, um, was basically uh, an illiterate peasant who came from the south of China. And um, even though she um, contributed in so many ways, she didn't have an opportunity to contribute in other ways because of her limited literacy. Um, I grew up knowing that she could only write her name in Chinese characters in that kind of shaky primary school script. And her daughter, my mother, was um, one of seven children who grew up in Malaysia and was educated. Her father had the radical idea for his generation that uh, his daughters should be educated alongside his sons, which was relatively unusual at that stage in time and where they were. And then my mum has had five children and then there's me, the kind of like most ridiculously privileged and educated of the lot. Went to university, did my postgraduate degrees, but I also can't speak Cantonese anymore. So it kind of comes full circle. <laughs> I speak Cantonese with kind of the, the halting uh, literacy of a, of a toddler. So, um, but, but it does show you in two generations how quickly education has changed um, our access in terms of being a family. Nya um, Kelly Saunders, um, and I'd like to also acknowledge country today. I'm a teacher, originally primary trained, but I've worked in all sorts of different educational settings. So before I start, I also want to acknowledge all the teachers in the room. Um, education, I guess, for me has changed over time from my experience as a, as a child growing up in an education system that I th- think was very white um, and had no sort of mention of culture. And now I'm leading First Nations languages conservation projects um, that work within that educational setting. And so from across those different spectrums and in juvenile justice and um, correctional services, behavioural intervention and things, I would, all, I would say across all of them, education is the meaningful connection that results in ex- an exchange of wisdom that enhances well-being. Um, that, that is good education for me. Yeah. I think education is giving people the tools to be able to discover and the world of knowledge that's out there and also the tools to be able to think critically and analytically. That's what education is. It's not teach, it teaches you how to think, not what to think. And it's about, I think it's really importantly too and something I think we miss out on in Australia, it's about showing young people that there are as many ways to live good lives as there are people living lives. And one of the things we do terribly in Australia is silo our children. And that limits their education. Mm. Thank you. Um, So another question that I'd like to direct to all of you is what do you think is not being talked about or at least not enough on the topic of school and education? So we're beginning very narrow, obviously. Um, if it's okay, can I start? Uh, so I mentioned I work in um, First Nations language conservation, celebration and preservation through a project at Red Room Poetry. Um, and we pair elders and custodians in community on country with creative 
um, artists. And uh, we work with students within those communities, First Nation students from those communities, to learn languages, to self-express, um, and then to learn sort of all sorts of different ancient and contemporary wisdom um, from other First Nations communities. And I'd say when lots of people sign up for this project, you know, the research says from Bailey and Yang that not for 95% of those First Nation students, this is the very first language learning opportunity that they have. Um, and I'd say language is something, First Nations languages are things that aren't being um, explored enough in the classroom. And it's really exciting that it's the UNESCO Year of Indigenous Languages. And um, I think that's brought a lot of funding opportunities and support to classroom teachers to be able to embed um, cultural perspectives and custodians and elders to teach those within the classrooms, within the school setting. So it's positive to see those things coming about, but we, we still need a lot of work in those areas to have that be a permanent infrastructure within the classroom setting. I just want to expand on that because I was recently in um, New Zealand for a conference and the way in which te reo Māori is, is, is used um, amongst both Māori people and um, Pākehā people, so um, white settlers in New Zealand, is just so ingrained and I thought, wow, what an opportunity there for Australians to learn. But even when you talk to Māori people in New Zealand, they're like, the reason we're talking so much in Te Reo is not to exclude you, but because our language is under threat. And critical mass, I think, is roughly about 200 or 250,000 speakers fluently. And if they're saying that their language is under threat there, and I kind of think as like, you know, a settler Australian um, who did not grow up hearing any Aboriginal language, did not grow up hearing any acknowledgement of country where I was. I go back to my old school now and do hear it. But we have missed such a vital opportunity, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians alike, not just to preserve language, which is such an important thing to do, but also have a sense of ourselves as Australians. I think this ongoing tedious question of who are we as Australians, that answer lies within our 65-plus thousand years of Aboriginal history. When I travel around the world, you know, the Taiwanese culture, for instance, they had a really, really big ongoing existential crisis about what is Taiwan as a part of, you know, that, that's separate to China's understanding of who they are. And of course, they've got a very different history, they've got um, democracy, but the other thing they really came up with is it's in their Indigenous cultures too. That is the main kind of thing that they celebrate and focus on. Um, and I guess, coming back to, to your question, for me, probably the reason I'm on this panel is because in 2017 I wrote a quarterly essay called Moral Panic 101, and it was about the safe school scandal that kind of engulfed Australia conversations about media, politics and education in one really exploded across that year. The safe school scandal really, really took hold um, in 2016 when News Corporation in particular, and in particular the Australian, seized upon an initiative that was started um, on the state Victorian level and then became a federal initiative that was designed to support principals and teachers support their young LGBTIQA plus and questioning students because it was a no-brainer that, um, that all the independent studies showed that of all the different demographics in the schoolyard, one of the most vulnerable were queer and questioning students. And I think as much as the commentary around that at the time was, oh, well, this is a very specialist boutique bullying initiative. Like, why do we have to have a separate one just for queer and questioning students? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't we pay attention to all kinds of bullying. And I mean, there are several things to point out here, which is one, that anti-bullying initiatives, general ones, have existed for quite a long time. 
Two, all the research shows that unless you address different forms of queer phobia, like homophobia, biphobia, transphobia specifically, those kinds of levels of bullying don't actually change in the schoolyard. You actually have to name those things. And the third thing is that um, teachers and principals were the ones asking for it. They were leading the demands. Teachers who were saying, actually, you know, um, homophobic pejoratives are used in a classroom and I don't know if I can pull these students up because will that be perceived as me supporting gay rights in a school? Like a lot of educational um, people who work in the system felt lost. And so this was a really mild initiative to support them and News Corp turned it into a scare campaign saying, did you know teachers are teaching children to be gay? Uh, which it was not. Um, not sure that can actually be taught. And even if it could be, the subtext there is the only reason that would be a negative thing at all is if you think there's something wrong with being gay or trans or bi or anything else. So I think in order to answer your question, one of the things that's missing and has been missing uh, has been robust support for teachers, for principals, for support staff in order to help the most vulnerable students when it comes to their sexuality and gender. Um, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I would like to give a shout out to Northern Territory Public Schools. I went to a conference um, for the leaders of Northern Territory Public Schools. I emceed it um, a few weeks ago and one of the things that they were talking to me about and that I opened my eyes to was how most, almost all those schools are bilingual. They, are, uh, they, they teach in um, the um, Indigenous language as well as in English and they were talking about how enriching that is to all their students. Um, I'm a great believer that um, innovation and only happens in the poorest schools. It doesn't happen in the richest schools because rich schools go on nicely, everything's fine, there's no need to change anything, they just keep doing the same things over and over. Um, but in, when you're really up against it, that's when you have to come up with new ways of doing things. That's something we never talk about. Um, something else, I think, uh, it, it, not what Ben was saying, but not completely unrelated, is we're not talking about the effect of porn on young people and school is a safe place to do it. Um, you know, we are... Kids are... majority of kids have seen really quite extraordinary porn by the time they're 13 and nobody is talking to them that this is a performance. This is no more real than an erotic oil painting from 1880. Um, you know, it's all rubbish and this is often the only sex education a lot of kids are getting. And some of the stories coming from young women about what they think they have to do um, and what they ought to be enjoying but actually find either painful or humiliating, as anyone would, I think that this is something... And I don't think we're going to do it. I think for the same reasons, the Australian would just jump all over it and that would be the end of that and every conservative politician would leap on it with glee and, you know, the same dreary old arguments. But I guess for me, the thing that I think we never talk about enough is how we're using our education system in Australia to do the complete opposite of what education systems are supposed to do and that is we are building a class system via our education system. The statistics that no one really knows about are that Australia is by far, out and away, the highest public funder of private schools in the world. Like we are whoop, streets ahead of anyone else on that. Um, and 
Scott Morrison is busily increasing it and um, he's just given $10 million in drought relief, which explicitly excludes anyone who sends their children to public schools. Um, and uh, that's on top of a gratuitous $1.2 billion that just came out of nowhere and he scattered over the richest schools and left the poorest schools completely out. Um, that Australia is also, so we're the highest public funders of private education anywhere. We are one of the lowest public funders of public education anywhere. And this divide is huge and growing and we are ignoring the effect that poverty has on young children, uh, developing brains, their ability to learn, their ability to concentrate in class. And we're saying to teachers, you overcome poverty. You know, it's your job, teachers. Oh, except for you nice teachers in the private schools, you don't need to worry, you have some more money. Perhaps you'd like to gild the exterior of some of those schools with that money. I'm not sure what else they're going to do with it. Um, frankly, they must be getting embarrassed and thinking, Jesus Christ, another billion from the government. What will we do? Um, how many multimedia centres can one private school have? I don't know. It's a problem. Um, I think, and I don't think Australians are angry enough about it. I don't think we're loud enough about it. I think we keep quiet about it. And I think we're as blind to the effect that this huge educational divide has on the uh, health and the and, and our society as Americans are about gun control. We are blind, deaf and dumb to it. And if you want to see the effect, just have a look at the people in our parliaments. The majority of them are private school boys from the same small group of private schools that run our country, that run our businesses, that run our law courts, that run our everything. And are they doing a good job? No, they are fucking not. <laughs> you're going to pass me because that was... Don't make me apologize. Well, yeah. So as everyone has spoken about, I think something we don't talk about enough is that when you are a teacher and you've got all these children, students in front of you, that you're, you're working with a cross-section of society. And I'm not sure that there's any other profession out there where you daily are inter interacting with this, this mighty cross-section there seems to be this sort of um, outlook that, that, that this one-size-fits-all model of education will fit every student. And as a teacher, you're there looking, going, okay, so this one's not sure who her dad is. This one hasn't had enough to eat. This one's come from, you know, drug-affected parents and he's not sure where he's going to sleep tonight. This, you know, and every single one of them comes with this little bucket of cultural capital that, you know, and some of those buckets aren't very full. And then the idea is that as a teacher, you just stand there and pour in and fill them up with this standardised curriculum and it, you, just cont you just fail. You just fail and fail as a teacher every day and it's, it's so demoralising. But you guys have all sort of spoken about that. So the, the other thing I was thinking that we don't talk about enough is the fact that Kids are at school for this portion of time. But where are they the rest of the day and the rest of the week and the rest of the year <laughs> while us teachers are on holidays, <laughs> you know, spending all that money we made? You know, we are, we are teaching those children for that portion of time. But 
who's who's lifting the rest of the time? Where are we at as parents and as a community, um, as as people in other professions? You know, we are all educators and we are all called to step up and be a part of this, you know, village that raises the children. And this is something that really concerns me because there does seem to be this idea that you just drop the kid off, you know, when they're five or six, 13 years later, job ought to be done. And if it's not, I'm going to be cross with you. And that's that's just so unfair because I'm working within the time I've got with the means I have to do the best I can with this cross-section of society that's sitting in front of me. So I think that conversation about the idea of teachers being the uh, parents being the first and lifelong educators of their child is something that we're not talking about enough. And then beyond that, you know how how society needs to step up, communities as a collective to be involved in in raising and and growing and learning our young people. Um, so I want to come back to the idea of inclusivity in public schools. And I'm interested in how you all feel about Tony Abbott tweeting in 2017, good that New South Wales is scrapping so-called safe schools, a social engineering program dressed up as anti-bullying. And what do you also think about the idea that the safe schools program was voluntary in the first place, so not every public school signed up for the program? yeah, so Benjamin... We'll Where do we begin? <laughs> I almost need like a PowerPoint presentation and a timeline for you all because um, when you actually go back into the timeline of safe schools, your jaw starts dropping in terms of the narrative that both people who are ostensibly um, uh, against safe schools and are ostensibly for safe schools were led to believe. And that's because the narrative was so twisted. We were led to believe that... Um, queer activists had somehow led this Trojan horse of queerness into um, public schools across the country and it had exploded in rainbow confetti and now your children were being taught how to use dildos. I'm not making this up. Like that idea actually was floated in the House of Representatives by George Christensen that that is what was happening in schools because there were several tabloid reports, um, many of which were started by Rita Panahi in the Herald Sun that were factually false. I mean, lies, basically. And um, when you go back, what's quite interesting is that Safe Schools started as an initiative that came out of La Trobe University based on years and years and years of research, right? It was independently assessed and anyone who works in the education system knows the kind of brilliant and almost tedious rigour that must be applied to let materials go into especially public schools. Um, and that was, um, that was introduced as a state initiative by conservative government, the value government, the first year of which was deemed so successful that they actually increased the funding for safe schools in after its first year because teachers and principals were responding so well saying we now feel more equipped to support the students in our midst. We, we, like, we are loving this, we are needing this, roll it out further, and that's what the Ted Bowie government did. The federal government, at that time Labor, also saw what Victoria was doing and said that should be a national initiative, that's great. And when Labor lost that election, the Conservatives picked it up and they're like, yep, that's a no-brainer, pass it through. The Prime Minister at the time was Tony Abbott. So you can argue that ostensibly, essentially... 
the Abbott government actually launched safe schools, which they did. So either one, when Tony Abbott is tweeting that thing in 2017, he is lying, which is pretty bad, or he didn't know what his government was doing, which is also pretty bad. Uh, so um, for him not to be across the details, I think, is is an indictment either way, whatever kind of lens you look at it with. Um, and And beyond that, I think what so many of um, people thought Safe Schools was, when I came into writing the quarterly essay, I thought, oh, well, if queer activists are teaching kids about queer sexuality, that's something I really wish I had when I was growing up because the sex education that I had as a gay man was not relevant and actually not having that information put my sexual health at risk because I didn't know, I wasn't informed by school what constituted Good safe practice, and to be honest, neither did the heterosexual kids. Like we were told how het- we were told how sex works in terms of reproduction, and then we were just shown slides of like rotten genitalia, saying this is what happens when you have sex, children. Um, that's not a good sex education. It doesn't teach young people about um, pleasure and consent and enthusiasm. And if you're, I mean. I think a lot of adults balk at that. They think if you're going to teach kids about why adults have sex, they're just going to start having it. But if they don't know about why most adults have sex, most of us aren't doing it just to have babies. Most of us do it because it feels good. And if you don't know that sex is supposed to feel good, that is also really dangerous, isn't it? Because if it doesn't feel good, what are you actually allowing yourself to be um, in a situation of? um, And so... I, uh, in conclusion, (laughs) what do I feel about that tweet? Uh, Amused. I think that's an interesting thing too, that that premise of if we we talk about... um, if we if we talk about it, the sex and uh, all of this, then the kids are going to go out and and start doing it. And I don't think that's true because I talk about times tables, <laughs> and they don't they don't go rushing out to do that. You know, it's it's kind of a flawed mentality. But the other the other thing I would like to say to any person that is, you know, the Tony Abbotts of the world and these politicians and policymakers that hand down these things and they've not even set foot in a school. You know, I think about, I mean, especially with safe schools, and I'm going to get emotional as I think about it, but, you know, until you've seen a young child who's been born into a boy's body but he knows that he, he should be standing in the girls' line and why we made them line up as boys and girls, I don't know. But the trouble and the conflict that that kid would have every day just at assembly in those first few moments at school, this place that should be safe, and to see that girl standing in between the two lines, in between, and the, the conflict. And there were seven. You know, Tony, come look at that and then talk to me. Tony wouldn't give... I'm sorry, he would not care. The problem we have also in our education system is it's front line in the culture wars and the culture wars now, more overtly I think than any time previously, are currently between religious believers and an increasingly secular population. And basically we saw it with the same-sex marriage debate and the letter that came from a lot of uh, religious schools principals. A lot of them have now backed furiously away from it, but nevertheless, they all signed it in the first place. Um, 
And one of the reasons I think that we get a very religious prime minister or a series of very religious prime ministers like um, Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison and also Malcolm Turnbull pouring money into um, private schools is because 96% of them are religious schools. And there is a real fear that religion is rapidly dying. I don't happen to fear it. I think bring it fucking on. But, um, you know, I don't mean in individual faith you can believe whatever stupid thing you like. But I mean in terms of it being the uh, control mechanism in society. And we're seeing it now with this religious freedom bill. That's going to have a huge impact on schools in particular about which teachers they can and cannot employ. Mind you, that exists now. If you are a um, gay physics teacher, a private school might decide to employ you because it's, there's a real scarcity of physics teachers. So they'll take, but the minute a straight religious physics teacher comes along, they can fire the gay one like that, no notice, no redundancy pay, nothing, no um, recourse to the Anti-Discrimination Act right now. But now they're asking for even greater exemptions and abilities. So the problem is that we, Tony Abbott is merely repeating what his side of politics has, is really passionate about, and that is returning us to a society which is patriarchal, judo-Christian, um, and where women, LGBTQI people, people of colour, uh, people with a disability, any group that is not a white, straight bloke um, who went to a private school, I'd like to add, stays in their place. Don't kid yourself that that's their agenda. That is their agenda. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um, was thinking I've got two kind of visions in my mind. One is a Scotty Marsh painting of Tony Abbott waving around a dildo and, like, raining confetti. So I want to call him and be like, yo, Scotty, I think I've got a new image for you. Um, it's a bit of a throwback, but it's still important. Um, <laughs> and then the other is the whole – everything I hear about that, you know, Tony Abbott was also the Minister for Aboriginal People and the Minister women. for Women. Ugh. Oh, God. And as a black woman, I'm like, that guy, really? Um and, yeah, I echo all of that sentiment because, to me, that just seems like a continuation of a colonial structure that seeks to oppress people. And a lot of our First Nations kids are, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they identify within one of those acronyms and they, um, they do not feel seen or safe um, to operate within their educational setting. And uh, I think safer schools would have been a really great thing that could have been continued or some kind of iteration of that. And I hope that we move more and more towards something that caters for our students and makes them feel seen, heard and cared for. Just one word of hope. Of course, it was in a lot of schools for a period of time. The teachers and the principals in those schools did benefit from what was in that program. And I'm sure that they continue to put those things Exactly. Out. And what was really heartening was that at the height of the Safe School scandal that was prosecuted by News Corp, the uptake of um, schools that signed up to the initiative actually increased. They assessed what was right and necessary for their student population away from the tabloid scandals, even though schools were being targeted. There was one school that I spoke to that had been singled out 
by the Herald Sun for a series of lies that were told about them. And by the time I visited them a year later, IT specialists were still working to ensure that the hate mail, the volume of hate mail that they were receiving to this school was being filtered properly. And that's the damage that these campaigns do. And just on, a, on another note as well, you're really right, Jane, about the way in which the culture wars are heightening this kind of sense that it's about religious people versus not religious people. What was interesting was that there were plenty of examples within the safe schools debate that showed that that needn't have been the case. For instance, um, one of the highest uptakes of the Safe Schools Initiative, even though they didn't call it Safe Schools within their schools, was one of the biggest networks of um, Catholic schools within the country. And what the Catholic school network did was they they took up Safe Schools, they took up that training because all the materials are there online, free to use for you right now. It's never gone away. And for any conspiracy theorists about Safe Schools, it's like, that material is just there. Like, you're going to have a look at it. Um, and what they did was they took it on into their schools, this Catholic network, and they framed it around the teachings of Christ. This is why we are going to adopt these policies about LGBTIQA plus protection and inclusion because this is what the New Testament says. And I thought that was really interesting, a really fascinating, healthy response that cut through all the culture wars bullshit. As um, someone with a younger sibling who's gender fluid and watched that younger sibling go through a lot of really traumatic mental health issues growing up, um, and as an English teacher now, what, what I try and do is bring texts like yours in, such as, um, you know, the family law and your anthology, Growing Up Queer in Australia. I think those kinds of texts play a really big role in educating our young people. Yeah. The Australian is, I think, I hope, fighting a losing battle. Um, that's why they're so extremely shrill and strident and noisy and why you get the hate mail. You get that kind of response when people know, feel their group is slipping. I mean, I, I do love the story of that wonderful um, little school in South Australia that did a Dress Like a Girl um, fundraiser for a school in Africa, girls' schools in Africa, and Corey Bernardi got his um, knickers, I'd like to think of him wearing frilly ones, um, in a, a really, really, really big twist and fulminated about it. And so instead of raising what they expected, which was a couple of grand, they actually raised some hundreds of thousands of dollars, like it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so Bruce Pascoe has said that when I was told at school that Aboriginal people were wanderers and the most backward people on earth, I was ashamed rather than rebellious. Inquiry had been drilled out of me. By the time elders had drilled it back in years after I left university, I began using the greatest research tools of all curiosity and doubt. So leaving aside the problem of First Nations people being spoken about as if they are, you know, people of the past and their culture is that of the past, how can we encourage curiosity and doubt in our students? And um, I would like you also to sort of explore why that's so important in terms of fostering uh, in inclusivity and equality. Um, Kelly, do you want to start us off? Yeah, um, I love Uncle Bruce's work. I'm reading Duck Emu again. And every time I, you know, I'm shouting out to my boyfriend down the hallway, babe, babe, did you know about these wells? Did you know about this? He's like, yeah, curls, I've read. I'm like, but this is amazing. How exciting, you know? And I, um, and it does 
reading it again does strike in me a real deep sense of curiosity of, um, and, and an encouragement and an excitement and I definitely witnessed the shame and felt a lot of that shame as a kid. My, one of my earliest experiences is um, I think I was in year two, one or two, having my teacher ask me to stand up in front of the class and show what an Aboriginal kid looks like at a private school, which is why I'm a fierce public education advocate because um, when I moved to a public school, I never witnessed, well, not from the teachers anyway, that kind of um, racial discrimination. Um, and, yeah, and so I guess reading those books has been a, a good reminder for me about about curiosity and I witness it a lot too when we're um, unpicking some of those colonial structures within students' minds for our First Nation kids when we're teaching them language. The, the, we go through that process of eradicating that shame feeling and um, diminishing that and exploring why we feel that. Um, and then moving into rewriting those ideas of our identities. And you see then this, yeah, this want to know more. Tell me more. I want to know more about this. Where can I read more? Where can I find out more? Who can I talk to? So it's deeply important um, for education because I think you're right. It does give, provide that, that skill set uh, for inquiry or at least prompt the need for the skill set for inquiry to be able to learn beyond just what is being transmitted to us at a time. Um, and... How to do that, I think, is to, yeah, one way of doing that would be to unpack beliefs that don't serve our students um, and looking at the broader systematic structures that put a belief in place and making students ask, well, why is that? Or why do I think that? Or why am I not interested in that? Or, and what does that feel like in my body when I'm being told a certain thing? Because I think students have a very... Um, they're very intuitive and they're very awakened to their physical experience, but they're taught to go against that intuition quite early. So that would probably be one way that I'd want to see that evolve more in the classroom. Kelly, I want to follow on from that because I've been reading the work of Alan Reid um, and the name of his book escapes me right now, something about changing something, Australia, education. There's another word that goes in there. Um, but he is writing about the fact that the system that we work in at the moment is the, that we send our kids to school, it's the sausage factory, it's the learn-to-work model. So you go in and we're just educating so we can get a job and you come out and then you be a good compliant consumer and pay your taxes and we keep that big wheel of economics um, just churning over. Um, Alan writes about, you know, no, actually we go, we need to change that narrative and we need to acknowledge, yes, we go to school to learn to work, you know, so that we can be productive members of our society and our communities. But also we go to school because we're inherently curious, we're creative and we're social beings and until we place value on that curiosity, creativity and social element of education, we're really going to struggle to get education right um, and to produce students that graduate feeling like, you know, well-rounded and with good well-being and ironically then able to work and be productive members of society. You know, they're coming out of school and, you know, they're off on schoolies right now just recovering from that whole thing that was the past 13 years. And, you know, that's, that's terrible. There's a solution being put forward at the moment because most Australians don't know this either, but Australia has one of the longest school days in the OECD. We actually have kids in front teachers more than most other better performing school systems. And Passy Salberg, who's out, who's, who was one of the movers and shakers behind the miracle of Finland, Finland's education system, has um, a, 
a mission, he told me. His mission is to save public education around the world. And he is now living in Sydney, sending his children to a Sydney public primary school. He works at the Gonski Institute with Adrian Pickley, who, much as we may slag off right-wing politicians, National Party um, politician, the best education minister uh, we've ever had anywhere. Um, And Pazzi's solution is to reduce the amount of face-to-face teaching time and to increase the amount of free play and creative time right the way through the school year. So he wants to do something counterintuitive, which is don't shove more information into them, actually reduce the amount of information you're shoving into them. Because he says that gives kids a chance to be curious and creative and collaborative and have joy and have fun and discover and test out what they're learning in the classroom. But it also gives teachers time to collaborate, to come up with creative ideas for the classroom when they're actually doing face-to-face. We could fix this thing relatively simply, but you can hear already the Australian grinding its gears to come down on this idea of letting children play. We should whip them in the classroom (laughs) so that they keep their head down. You know, don't let them do anything that's joyful. Because there's something peculiarly um, uh, purse-lipped about the right wing in Australia. It is so anti-joy. It is so crush any pleasure. Someone's having fun? That's not a good thing. (laughs) Um, I think I I do a little bit of consulting work with preschools, which is joy, absolute joy. Um, And early childhood centres, I think, do that element of play really, really well. And it makes me excited when you see early childhood teachers in, you know, kindergarten, year one and year two, making play-based learning the underpinning of their literacy and numeracy programs. And I'm hoping that that's another place where curiosity um, and that self-directed learning and that collaborative learning become, yeah, a, a focus within the education space. I don't want to be a little bit um, of a downer on that, but I just was speaking to my daughter this morning. I was speaking to Gabby about this before, and her my grandchildren are at three and a half and eighteen months. And they go to a little local preschool, and um, she said when her son, the older one, first started, she'd get a little note at the end of the day saying, "Oh, Alfie and Patrick decided to build a Christmas tree. They had a lovely time, you know, blah blah blah." That's just a report, a few photos, lovely. That's all she wanted. Now she's getting Alfie and Patrick decided to build a Christmas tree out of plastic bags. Alfie picked up three red pieces. So they're doing this accountability reporting which takes 40 minutes of the poor preschool teacher's time where instead of being able to play with the kids and have fun with them, she's always thinking, oh, crikey, I better note down exactly what Alfie's doing or else, you know, I won't be able to fill in my form at the end of the day. Well, the kids are going to pick up that feeling amongst the teacher that used to just have a really good time with them. This is the, And now we're going to put a rating system on all preschool doors about whether it's a good preschool or a bad preschool. I can tell you what that'll do to the preschool teachers. Paralyse them. It'll paralyse them. It'll be eins zwei dry. You know, it, trust governments to crush the joy. Accountability. We should hold accountability to account. Uh, so I'm going to skip a couple of my questions because I want to get to um, this last one and then we might have some questions from the audience. So if anyone's got something, have a bit of a think. Uh, so the question that I wanted to ask is in this age of data, increased paperwork in the name of accountability 
and a push for greater teacher quality. Why do you think our politicians don't trust teachers? Oh, there's no greater election-winning strategy than to kick teachers. Everybody loves kicking a teacher. Um, nothing they, it's a sort of national sport. Yeah, I think it's an easy win. And whenever there's a moral panic of any kind, we all say, well, the schools should be fixing this. You know, they should be teaching financial literacy. I recommended it about porn, you know. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Um, you know, we immediately turn around, the teachers need to fix it. And politicians are just diverting responsibility um, onto schools and teachers by doing that. I think, too, Australia has a, has a problem. We have a, a streak of anti-intellectualism, which is very dangerous. And I think it expresses itself in a fear of and suspicion about teachers because we see them as the keepers of the intellectual and we, and we feel, I don't know, we, and I do know that parents are terrified of teachers because they think they're like psychiatrists and they can see all your failings as a parent just by watching your child. Of course they can. <laughs> it, it takes me to a time when I, we were having news and a child, we were talking about our favourite room in the house and most of them were my playroom and, and mum and dad's favourite playroom is their bedroom and I know because they broke the bed from jumping on it and I was like, did they? <laughs> did they? We know everything. Teachers know everything. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I'm big problem. Yeah, in, and um, I, I don't know what the fix is but I just wanted to send some uh, gratitude to every teacher in the room at the moment who's going through that hellish accountability phase and who is pulling their hair out and literally becoming sick from writing reports um and which no one reads yeah yeah and and even that's heartbreaking because you're like damn it I poured so much effort into this but I think too there's this massive misconception and misunderstanding about the work that teachers do the true work and now I'm going to share my little anecdote my friend in the audience whose heart's racing yeah let it race babe so um, this is actually not a story about me. It's about a story that I, a teacher that I worked with, Mrs. Scott, and we can safely say because she's not here and also she's my mate that she's been teaching since dinosaurs roamed the earth and she's one of those cracking good old school teachers who adopts all the new stuff that comes in. She's seen the stuff come and go and she just lets it filter on through and she's any child who's been taught by Mrs. Scott's had a, had a good year under their belt and Mrs. Scott taught this kid named Gary and Gary was in her year six class and Mrs. Scott knew that I was dabbling in writing and I, I had had a book published. This is in a, another lifetime. I've also published a young adult fiction if anyone cares to look it up. It's a great book. It came, it came before teacher. And Mrs. Scott said to me, hey, do you think you might mentor Gary? I think he's got some talent and so in my library time, my sacred, sacred library time, my one hour of relief from face to face, I mentored Gary and another student or two. And um, not very long ago, a few months ago, um, Gary got in touch with me. We had been friends on Facebook and, and whatever. And he said, can I give you a call? And I said, yeah, please, love to hear from you. And he called me to say, 
Hey, Mrs. Stroud, I just want you to know that a young adult fiction book I've just written has been picked up by Alan and Unwin, and it's going to be published in uh, 2021. And I just want to thank you for mentoring me, and I'm wondering if you might like to step up and do a bit of that again. That's the work that teachers do. That is the work that teachers do. And it's not just the work I did. It was Mrs Scott seeing that talent and knowing that she had to do something about that, that she had to get Gary all lit up about this ability and this skill that he had. And, you know, Gary's this, you know, young Indigenous guy in, in Bega and now he's like, this is a voice. He's found a voice. Um, and, and people are listening and I'm, I'm a tiny part of that and I'm so proud. So I'm going to make him stand up and I would like you all to give him a big round of applause. We have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rihanna. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.